Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Female Founders Network, a podcast brought to you by invoice to go I'm your host, Nat, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sylvie. Hey, everyone. We record our show in the Forbes Street studio in downtown Sydney, Australia, but we bring guests from all over the world. So you'll hear people from the US, the United Kingdom, Europe, the Asia Pacific, anywhere that we find women who lead and inspire others. This is a great podcast for women who are navigating business ownership, leadership, or just life. Each episode should connect you with someone else's story, but also leave you with practical tips and advice that you can use in your own life and in your own business. Hi, guys. Today, we're speaking with Rachel braun She's an orgasmic leader slash vagipreneur focused on helping launch and market products related to women's vaginal health and sexual well-being. In this episode, Rachel will talk about changing cultural attitudes towards women's sexual health and pleasure, as well as her experience bringing her first sexual satisfaction product for women to market. Rachel will also discuss how she built her consultancy and how she powers through a career in what some still consider a taboo subject. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Rachel. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? Very good. And yeah. you are about as far away as you could possibly be from us right now. I think <laughs> you're, you're about halfway around the world. So do you want to tell our listeners where you are? I'm right now in snowy New Jersey. about 18 miles uh, west of Manhattan. Oh, beautiful. And this episode will actually air in the summertime, so (laughs) maybe then you'll be missing the snow, but I doubt it. it. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully it won't be snowy then still, but who knows before the crazy stuff that's going on. (laughs) Uh, Climate change. So you have a really interesting story and a really interesting um, subject of expertise. Um, So do you want to just begin by telling us how you became the woman you are today? Sure, it's a big question. And uh, in my family, we have this joke, we have a summary rule where the retelling of the story can't take longer than the events actually took to take place. So (laughs) given that I just had a birthday, I have plenty of time. But um, I spent my career building brands and businesses, both for myself and other people. Mm -hmm. I started my career um, after business school at Johnson & Johnson. And the reason I mention that is those relationships and those skills have been so foundational and fundamental to everything that I've done since. So I've always really been about growing brands and businesses, both for myself and for other people. And what that means from my perspective is, what do you do to drive a transaction? So we call it very pragmatic strategy. What do you need to say? What do you need to offer? What do you need to communicate? What do you need to understand about your target? How do you better define your target? Uh Where is she or he? what products might he or she need? Where, what geographies are they in? So really anything focused on making sure that what you're offering will result in a purchase. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Smart. I've spent the last, uh, so I've worked in women's businesses from the tops of their heads to the tips of their toes for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and about 14, 15 years ago, made that even narrower and focus on the the business of women's sexual and reproductive health. Mm-hmm. And that was the result of the fact that a venture capitalist showed us a, a business plan and he said, well, this isn't for me. This doesn't fit into my investment thesis, but maybe you'd want to consult to them. Okay. And the product was a patented blend. The product was a patented blend of botanical oils and extracts mm-hmm. that was clinically proven to increase arousal, desire, and satisfaction 
for women of all ages and life stages. Wow. So that's really when we became entrepreneurs. That was in 2008. <laughs> we raised a bunch of venture capital over the next couple of years. Yeah. Um, we built this business really focused on desire, arousal, and satisfaction. And one of the things that became very clear early on is that in order to do this, we had to be quite instrumental and, and pretty aggressive in creating a conversation mm. around any of these topics. Yeah. yeah. So at the time we started the company, if you were to do a Google search you'd, about vaginas or satisfaction, you would get generally two extremes. Yeah. One would be porn and the other would be disease. Um, but what's happened over the past many years, there's many more people in the space. There are many more companies in the space and there's a lot more conversation. Right. And I've really focused in the businesses that I've been in, in how do we create a vocabulary and how do we create a conversation with that vocabulary? Yeah. Yeah. How did you find raising money for, for this business? Because venture capital is obviously traditionally, um, more male and, from stories I've heard from founders who are, you know, bringing out women's sexual health products or sexual satisfaction products, it's almost like the male VCs don't get it and then it's harder to get investment. Was that something you experienced or did you have, like, a, such a strong messaging that they couldn't say no? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I experienced it. People still experience it. A lot of the companies I work with experience it, but... Mm-hmm. Just to put it in context, at the time we were originally raising money, there were, we, were big, we were in a big economic downturn. The bottom had fallen out of the financial markets, mm-hmm. and people were being laid off left and right. Companies were going bankrupt, and here we come, my business partner of 20 years and I, two women who were middle-aged at the time and now even more middle-aged, talking about a business about vaginas. So <laughs> any stereotype, any experience, any ridiculous experience you could imagine we had. And just in brief, we had this experience where we had 13 meetings in two days with venture capitalists. Yeah. And for those people who have never raised money, the objective really is to get someone sufficiently interested that they want to create another meeting or they want to schedule another meeting or they want to take ownership of doing diligence on this company. Yes. Mm. So we thought the worst thing that could happen is that people would be quiet. It turns out the worst thing that can happen is people are giggling and making sexual innuendos and jokes behind their hands to their colleagues in the meeting. So we go into the first meeting and we get asked a question about Viagra. We give the very scientific answer about how men's sexual response works like a hydraulic pump. And so you pump blood in, which is really what the Viagra drugs do. Vasodilators, they increase the blood flow. The system works, whereas women have a much more complex set of systems that have an impact on their sexual response, Mm -hmm. whether they're psychological, physiological, behavioral, social, contextual. But it's a much more complicated puzzle to solve. So at the end of the first meeting or during the first meeting, you know, we're hearing them giggle and we hear people making jokes about their senior prom date and some girl they used to go out with. And and we're in a professional meeting. And what's interesting is it was in Silicon Valley. I had gone to Stanford for business school. So Mm -hmm. lots of the people at these companies either knew my classmates or my classmates had senior investment roles at these places. But it almost didn't matter because we sort of reverted to the lowest common denominator. Mm -hmm. So we leave the first meeting you know, of course, without a a nickel. And we go to the second meeting. And the first question we get asked there is, what does this product say about men's satisfaction? And we 
provided detail about how we had done um, a placebo-controlled, double-blind, 13-sexual site center clinical test, which was really a pharmaceutical model. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about how what we measured was her satisfaction and desire and arousal on a number of um, accepted scales, and that we believe that his satisfaction was really more based on anecdotes. And, and the study was done with heterosexual couples who had been in relationships for, for a long time. Yeah. That's how mm-hmm. the study was designed. Um, and we said his satisfaction, we believe anecdotally, was likely due to the fact that his partner was more satisfied. Mm-hmm. So he either felt better about himself or felt like a more skilled lover. Yeah. Okay. We had the same reaction, the giggles, the senior prom, the last uh. girl they went out with. <laughs> and, you know, all of a sudden we felt like we were in a seventh grade locker room. And then yeah. I realized what like, year well, was... that's not nice. Can I ask this you what two... year this was? <laughs> it's 2008 to 2010. We're yeah. raising money. Oh, 2010, my. 11. Um, but it wasn't the Stone Ages. So yeah, I mean, yeah. if that's the question. It was in modern times. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we sort of couldn't believe it. And we said, well, we're not leaving here. We have 11 more meetings and we're not going to leave with any money at the rate that we're going. So in between meeting two and three, my business partner, Mary, and I huddle, and we said, well, we've got to shake it up. This isn't working. Mm. If we can't even get them to ask strategic questions or questions about our strategy to grow the business or acquisition strategy, whatever it is, something where we could share what our plans were to grow the business, then we weren't going to leave with any money. Something made me look at my wallet, and as we joke now, we don't know if it was divine intervention or dumb luck, but I had a $100 bill in my wallet. And the only reason that's relevant is because I'm very compulsive and I track everything. Yes. So I do everything on credit cards. I could tell you what I spent on groceries in February of 2015 <laughs> and what I spent on clothes for my kids in January of 2004. Not that anybody wants it, but I have it. <laughs> so the fact that I had a $100 bill was sort of surprising, but it gave us an idea. So we huddle and we said, okay, we have 11 more shots. We're here for another day and a half. Yeah. It can't go worse than the first two. Let's try something different. So we go into the third meeting after coming up with our strategy, and I have the $100 bill in my hand, and I smack it on the table loudly, and I said, here's a $100 bill. If anyone asks us a question about the category that we can't answer, this $100 is yours. If anyone (laughs) makes a sexual innuendo that we haven't heard before, this $100 is yours. If anyone makes a double entendre, that makes us blush. This hundred dollars is yours. And then we pause. And I said, she likes it more. She wants to have it more. Let's talk about the business model. And that really was a pivotal moment for us in terms of how we talked about the business, because we sort of went right into the belly of the beast and we communicated. Yeah. Mm. We're serious people here to talk about serious business where you could make some serious money. If you want to giggle and laugh and make jokes with your colleague, knock yourselves out. But we're here. We're not afraid. We're not embarrassed. Ask us anything and we will still be standing here if and when you want to talk about the business. So it really took the energy out of the room for them. And it really changed how we talked about the business going forward. Yeah. in the book I wrote called Orgasmic Leadership, I, I described that as the moment when I feel like I stepped into orgasmic leadership, when I yeah. really realized mm. how I was going to talk about this space, how I was going to run a business in this space, and how I was going to 
build a business. Yeah. yeah. And be a strong leader and take control of the room. That's what you did in that moment when you put that money down on the table. You were like, mm. I'm... Well, we, yeah, I this think is, so. And yeah. we absolutely said, listen, like, if you guys want to giggle, not go ahead. Yeah. We're yeah. giggling. We're here. We can take it. Throw anything you have at us. And, you know, fast forward over a decade, many, many female founders um, are raising money. They're building businesses. Does this still happen? Yes. Is it still harder for women? For sure. We've all seen the statistics. Is it probably even harder when you're talking about things that make people uncomfortable, like vaginas or orgasms or pelvic floor therapy or you fill in the blank? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But there is, it is one of those spaces where a rising tide raises all boats. And Mm. the fact that there are so many more people, so many more businesses, so many more creative sources of capital does make a huge difference. Yeah. 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 Is it gone? No. I mean, has that disappeared entirely? A hundred percent no. But every month, every quarter, every year, it gets better. And part of that is the strength of all these voices coming together. Yeah. Why why do you think that women's pleasure is such a taboo subject? Hmm. I really think people are terrified. And I'm going to use an example of (laughs) what really brought it home for me. Hmm. I think it's because we don't understand. We're not terribly well-educated in the U.S. or anywhere else. We have great variations in what what we've grown up with culturally, religiously, Mm. um, in terms of how we think about sex. You know, I could say in the United States, the states that require sex education, which is not all of them, a subset of those don't even require it to be medically accurate. So think about that. Every time I say that, I pause because it's so absurd. Yeah. Forget about that we're doing a terrible job, if any, um, on consent and contraception and a whole bunch of other other things but Mm -hmm. this article i always reference it it wasn't that long ago i mean it was in in the mid-teens the 2013-14 there was an article uh on the cover of the new york times magazine section called unexcited is there a pill for that yeah it was talking about the idea that you know when you do a clinical study what you're trying to determine is was this difference that you saw, the statistically significant difference, what is it, was, was it a result of the product or was it just a placebo effect? Mm-hmm. And so in the article, they were talking about the fact that in most categories, you want the difference to be statistically significant so that you can attribute the change to the product or the device or whatever it is that you're evaluating. Mm-hmm. But that in women's sexual health, there was a concern that the products would be too effective effective, and then try to picture me doing air quotes on the radio right now, lest there be, and I quote, sexed crazed binges of infidelity, end quote. (laughs) The idea being that a woman who was satisfied or aroused would be running through the streets like a mad woman in heat, you know, unable to control her sexual desires. For God's sake. Um, So it's a control thing. Exactly. So So my reaction to that was, you know, is there pandemonium and chaos in the streets that men are running around with four hour erections? So I think it's really fear that's driven by lack of understanding. Yeah. And lack of education. And then you combine that in a world where for many people and for many young people, especially the ubiquity of porn has become the de facto expectation or education, if you will, around sex and intimacy and roles and appearances and 
it affects so many different things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's where that's if we're not having conversations where we can just be open and without embarrassment talking about sex and pleasure, not yeah. just sex for reproduction, sex for pleasure, which is yeah. what you spend most of your life doing it for, then people are going to look to porn because it's the only like real resource that they can find. And it's sad because I think it's it so also, interesting what you said. Yeah. It is absolutely true. The percentage of your life where you're actively trying to get pregnant for most people is significantly shorter. If at all. Like some people don't time. want kids and that's okay too. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, totally okay. That yeah. wasn't a judgment. But yeah. for, for people, if you are trying to get pregnant, yeah. except in a, a number of um, specific circumstances, the percentage of your life where you're not trying to get pregnant is significantly longer Uh, than the percentage of your life where you are trying to get pregnant. And it brings up an interesting point going back to the venture capitalists. One of the things that I've noticed and I've seen other people notice in fundraising is when you go, when I've gone into meetings and the people I work with have gone into meetings with venture capitalists, they apply almost another hurdle to investing in these businesses. So what do I mean by that? Let's say I go in and I'm presenting a cybersecurity um, technology that will be used by governments around the world. Yeah. A venture capitalist can say, I'll never be the customer for that, but I totally get how governments would need that. I get how people would purchase it. Yeah. When it comes to female health, hmm. if it's not something they've heard of or they're comfortable with, it doesn't exist. Yeah. So you have now another hurdle. So if you yeah. go in and talk about a fertility app or a fertility system or pregnancy monitoring, whatever it is, if there's a person in the room, a man in the room, mm-hmm. who has had an experience with that, then it's real. Yeah. I would go in and talk about desire, and I heard many men say to me, well, my wife's never complained about that. <laughs> to you. And to you, I, sir. Yes. <laughs> so... What, exactly. So what I wrote in the book that I said I wished I could have said in the meetings, but I couldn't was, listen, 43% of women have sexual concerns and difficulties at some point in their lives. Yeah. I'm pretty sure there's a decent chance that one of the partners of the people in this room has had that concern and perhaps didn't have the confidence, the language, the experience, mm. the, the know-how, the yeah. situation to express that dissatisfaction or... Um, to express needs that weren't being met. Yeah. 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 The other Mm -hmm. thing, and I want to know what you think about this, right? I think um, there's still this real fear of women who, who are truly independent, like who don't need anyone for anything. And it plays out in so many ways, right? Like financially, like sexually is just another manifestation of this like kind of public or cultural fear, I guess, Mm -hmm. of women being truly independent. Because when you take control of your own sexual pleasure, like that's another way that you're, (laughs) you just don't need anyone else. (laughs) You just can choose to have people in your life if you want to, but you don't actually, you're not dependent on anyone. Mm -hmm. So I feel like this new burst in sexual the interest of in women's sexual pleasure is linked to all that it's like more women are becoming independent in so many other ways that it's like okay Mm -hmm. this is just the next step yeah i think that's partially true and in large part i think it's driven by economic independence they've done all these kinds of studies where you know the there's a, a big increase in divorce in you know, women in their 40s and 50s, because now they have the economic option to no longer be married. Right. And I think that the idea around this sexual pleasure should not be threatening 
Right. Because if, from my perspective, if you think about it, if a woman who's in a relationship with a man knows what she wants, won't she then be able to have a better experience with you? Right. Mm. So I think it's a pretty outdated idea. Right. Um, yep. There's all different kinds of pleasure. And the fact that she might know how to pleasure herself, you know, which it's high time so many women did, doesn't make them obsolete. Right. It doesn't make a partner obsolete. Right. It mm-hmm. might put them in a different role. Right. But I think that's just an issue of really not understanding. Mm. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About women's pleasure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. I have, I have noticed a cultural shift, though, in more, like, stuff that I'm watching on Netflix or the, like you mentioned, there's more resources, more stuff out there rather than just porn and disease right. online. But definitely in shows, I've noticed that in, like, the sex scenes, there's, there seems to be more of a focus on the woman's pleasure now than there ever used to yeah. be, like, just, like, 10, 20 years ago. And it's Oh, it's a huge, huge shift. And I think you see it in the popular culture. I think you see it in the number of businesses that are in this space. I mm. think you see it because there's lots of people engaging in this conversation from many different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Some are doing it because they're entering into the business space. Some are doing it from an education space. Some are doing more than one. But it's really sort of the 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 again, the idea of a rising tide raises all boats and the impact is exponential Yeah, when all those things are happening at the same time. And if you think of all these businesses that have been created in whatever part of women's health you're thinking about, the majority of them have an education perspective. The majority of many of them have a communication um, aspect. So they're built around this idea that we need to be having conversations and I do think that's making an impact on the conversations that we're actually having. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so, okay. So we were talking about the essential arousal oil. So this was Zestra, the product that you yes. uh, were raising for. Um, did you eventually get funding? What happened then? Yes, we did. Yeah. We raised, um, you know, tens of millions of dollars. Um and we, when we sold the company, we were in 2000 Walmarts and we had built a direct to consumer business. Um, in many ways, we were ahead of our time and we're still, companies are still having those same conversations about, we, we've talked about access to capital, but one of the things that hasn't changed is really the access to media channels. Mm-hmm. So when we were running Zestra, one of the ways we built the company was that we had gone to 100 different media outlets. And by that, I mean cable network, um, radio, online, you name it. And 95% of them said no, meaning we don't want to take your money for your advertising, which we considered um, advertising that was, you know, wasn't suggestive. It was a talking head directly to the camera. There were other larger companies who were able to have much more explicit commercials. I mean, there were sneaker commercials that were much more sexually explicit. Right. Oh, the step-ups, the Kim Kardashian (laughs) step-ups. That was probably happening. Like when they get up and say, I've never had it better when they're laying horizontal. Um, But (laughs) in any case, after we went to all the legal departments of all the networks and we really, you know, really banged our head against the wall for uh, um, a year or so, we came up with the idea that if we can't buy media, we can earn it. And so mm-hmm. we built the company around this 
media strategy that talked about the disparity between men and women's advertising. Huh. And wow. it was incredibly effective in terms of getting attention. And if you look at the companies that have been launched over the past several years, most of the ones that have made any big impact uh-huh. have had one of those moments or those experiences or those movements when they're fighting City Hall. Mm. That's so crazy. A, yeah. Yeah. The, so there's a company by the name of Dame. Yes. Amazing company started yes. by two yeah. founders. I, I know Alex quite well. She's done an amazing job with the company. And, you know, she's right now in a lawsuit with um, the MTA, which the is subway. the governing body for controlling the advertisements in subways. Yeah, yeah, Would yeah. Would she rather be spending her money educating people about pleasure and the product? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, in the but argument, there are literally dozens of examples. Yeah. Like I want to I want to pause there because it's interesting. I The argument there from the MTA was, well, it was all about children. Like I heard a lot of things like about children. Well, we don't want children seeing this. We don't want children seeing that because the ads that they were trying to place were um, sexual toys for mm-hmm. women. Right. Mm-hmm. Correct. Am I right? Right, but the visuals were not necessarily the sex toys. The yeah. reason that argument falls down is because mm-hmm. at the same time, right. there were advertisements for the Museum of Sex. There was uh-huh. an advertisement for hymns, which showed right. um, basically a limp cactus talking about erectile dysfunction drugs. Right. And I'm all for standards. I think you're allowed to have whatever standards you want, mm-hmm. but you have to apply them equally. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And well, and here's the other thing that it's, it really shocks me. It's if you have traveled Europe at all, like uh, a lot of European kids are, are exposed to sex and talk, you know, they speak to their parents about sex in a really healthy way mm. in different parts of Europe from a very young age. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, I mean, like, are the kids living in Amsterdam with their parents? I don't know. But would their parents freak out over, a, you know, yeah. I, I doubt it. Like, there, it, there's just not one way to live, it's you know. There's a difference culturally. Yeah. And so, mm. yeah, there's a huge difference culturally. And I remember doing focus groups in France many, many years ago. Yeah. And the conversation came up where um, Mitterrand, who, who had died, who, um, when Mitterrand died, his mm-hmm. wife and his longtime girlfriend came to the funeral. Yeah. And we were talking about how that would have gone in the United States. And a person in the group said to me, and I'll never forget it, mm-hmm. in, in Paris, in France, Sex is about love. In the U.S., sex is about power. Now, it's a gross generalization, obviously, but there are huge differences within families, across cultures, across countries, across geographies, across traditions, in terms of the relationship that people have with sex and intimacy and their comfort level with talking about all those things. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's... um. It's interesting. I just listening to your show, like this is not uh, 30 years ago we're talking about here. We're talking about 10 years ago mm-hmm. and you're having these well, conversations. And I'll give you even ones that are, you know, there are From many, now. many, many that are more recent. I was, yeah. on, um, I was speaking with a bunch of people at uh, South by Southwest. Yeah. And it came up. A reporter had just done a story. Uh, Every company who's in this space could tell you one of their war stories, but this particular company was focused on menopause and um, vaginal dryness and a new approach to lubrication. And what they discovered was that the way Facebook monitors or determines ads um, for erectile dysfunction, 
is through family planning, through an algorithm around family planning, Mm. which is also interesting in and of itself. And we can talk about uh, for hours why that seems odd. But anything related to the vagina or orgasm or, or, you know, certain aspects of procreation were tagged as too explicit in nature. So again, the algorithm might have been applied the way it was written, but there was bias written into the algorithm. And, And the comment that I always made is, you know, you're concerned that vaginal dryness is too sexual in nature. Have you ever spoken to a woman who experienced vaginal dryness and ask her, if that experience was sexual in nature, mm. you know, it was just, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> it would be the last word you would use, you know, having done yeah. had many, many conversations and done focus groups with women experiencing vaginal dryness, sexy will never come up no. as something <laughs> they feel as a result of that. The other thing as well is like on a subway, like for example, as, as a counter, you, you don't know whose eyes are on that at any one time. Like you, if you had like more explicit ads and you, you didn't want kids to see it. But on Facebook, you can literally target people's ages, like <laughs> 18 and over only. So yeah. I don't understand why they have this like blanket ban on anything that's like too sexual. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense But to it's me. not anything that's too sexual. It's anything that's too sexual and has to do with women. Women. Right. Yeah. yeah because how many Viagra so sometimes ads have people kids seen? Yeah. yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the issue is really, it's one of um, disparate standards or standards that are not equally applied. Mm-hmm. Listen, if it's not appropriate to show this to young boys and girls, then neither is you know, uh, explicitly sexual things about men. But the difference is so great. You know, we have, kids have grown up with, on major network TV, advertisements about four-hour erections. There's not a kid who grew up in the last 30 years or now an adult who hasn't heard that expression. But that doesn't offend people. Right. I can talk for hours about why I think that is, you know, one of the reasons being that since it's a multi-billion dollar category. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah. But well, so would so many of these other female businesses if they had had that access and the same kind of funding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, the other thing, too, is it challenges people as parents. Right. So like, you know, my I have a 14 year old son. Right. We've talked about consent. We've mm-hmm. talked about everything because he he's well, first of all, he's being raised by a feminist mom. But (laughs) other than that, it's, you know, it's, we talk about all of this stuff and he can open up and tell me anything. And, but that's a relationship that it took a long time to build. Like he had to feel like there was no judgment coming from me. He had to have me talk transparently about things as he was growing up. Mm -hmm. And therefore we've built that relationship. So it's, but it is a challenge for parents who haven't built that relationship. So maybe it's fear, Mm. You know, like, oh, you know, the whole kids argument, like, I don't want my kids to see this. It's like, well, why? Well, you know, like, if you I don't dig want to deep, deal with this yeah, conversation. Exactly. Yeah. If you dig deeper, is it, you know, and everybody, like, parenting is hard no matter who you are. But if you dig deeper, is it really because there's something missing in your relationship with your kids where you feel like you can't talk to them about this stuff? Mm-hmm. Well, no one ever has looked forward, I don't think. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a gross generalization. It's not like it's the easiest conversation to right, have as right. a parent with your kids. What always used to drive me crazy and just seems so illogical is how, you know, you'd hear the argument, well, we don't want to teach kids about birth control because we don't want to encourage them to have sex. Well, <laughs> guess what? <laughs> We're having it with or without information, right. with or without birth control. So that's sort of an antiquated way to look at it. If mm-hmm. you look at, you know, in the U.S., 
that close to 50% of each of all pregnancies every year are unwanted or mistimed, it does mm-hmm. suggest perhaps that a couple of things that we don't have enough options for contraception or people aren't using them appropriately or people don't have the education. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. Um, I feel like we could just talk about this for hours. Like there's so many things to unpack. There's so many different things I'd love to dive into. Um, well, that's but, why I love this space. It literally yeah. never gets boring. It really <laughs> is <isn't. laughs> The people in it are interesting. The people yeah. who are putting money into it are interesting. The people who are creating businesses, you know, so many of them have a story yeah. where they had a problem. They looked around for a solution and they didn't see one. So they created a solution and ultimately built businesses around those. Right. And that's what you're doing now is that you, you, did you exit from Zestra as, and then now you're, we did in yeah. 2013, um, the business was sold to a specialty pharmaceutical company. And for the past eight ish years, I've really focused on, helping companies from menstruation to menopause figure out how to grow. And that could yeah. take many different forms. Yeah. It could take helping them find financing, building partnerships with, you know, corporate partners or other other partners that either um, where they share resources, where there's some money that changes hands, where yeah. they drive each other's distribution. It could be around better understanding of customers. It could be on understanding what their innovation pipeline should look like, Mm -hmm. but it really all comes down to who is this made for? What problem are you solving? And what would make someone buy this, use this versus something else? And Mm -hmm. one of the challenges in women's health specifically that's different than other categories is take shampoo or skincare or you know, a much more common or the soda that you drink. In most of those cases, people are already engaging in that behavior. Right. And what you're trying to do is have them add your product to their regimen or switch from another product to your product. In so many aspects of women's health, you know, inertia is the biggest competitor, Mm -hmm. either because they don't know what the options are, their doctors don't know what the options are, um, there's no one really to talk to. Right. And one yeah. of the, it's such an interesting thing that when you look at, I, I've worked in many, many categories, and there are very few where there isn't someone for a woman to talk to, whether it's her friend, her sister, her cousin, her college roommate, her mom. But in this space, you know, people historically haven't been very comfortable talking about it. At the time, last time we looked at the data, only three to five percent of obstetricians and gynecologists were talking to their patients mm. about sexual satisfaction. Yeah. And the other problem is when you combine that, that again, as we said at the beginning, these problems are hard to solve. Like you can't solve menopause. You yeah. know, not everybody even thinks of it as a problem. But there are literally dozens of symptoms. So it's not these are not simple equations to figure out. They're very complex Mm. situations that involve, you know, many different aspects of a woman's life. So Uh part of it is really understanding how complex in nature these life cycles are. Uh There's a whole group of people who said, I don't want to talk about them in terms of problems or solutions. And I get that, you know, is menstruation a problem? Well, no, it's a reality and it's useful (laughs) for a lot of different things. Um, so part of it is also changing the, the bigger conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Around, yeah, that it's not something that you have to Around be ashamed of. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The interesting thing we've is... We've seen huge progress in the menstruation discussion. Oh, mm-hmm. yes, absolutely. I remember when Thinks came out and everybody was like, mm-hmm. and they were a big, um, 
they were a big discussion starter, I think, mm. as a brand. For sure. And For they, sure. Didn't they and have they were a the massive... first ones who fought with the... No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, they, we were yeah, going to say also, the same thing. They also fought, <laughs> they also fought with the subways, with That's the exactly MTA. That's what I was going to say. Yes. Yeah. Because didn't they put up, they, they got their ads through somehow. I don't remember the story, but so thanks for everybody who doesn't live in the U.S. is was like one of the original period panties. Mm-hmm. So it has uh, multiple layers of absorption. You don't have to wear anything else with it if you don't want to. Um, and you can, they've got different thicknesses for different days, right? And it was like the first period panty or free bleed product, I mm-hmm. think, that a lot of Americans were exposed to for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So what was the, what was the um, controversy there? Do you remember, Rachel? So what, it, it, there were a bunch and they went viral a bunch of times and the yeah. founder was this, you know, incredibly dynamic, interesting, controversial uh-huh. person but, you know, the same thing. They were trying to put ads up and people went nuts. And so they became very public about the fact that their ads were rejected. Mm-hmm. And again, showing the hypocrisy between what was already being displayed in advertising and what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And when you think about it, it's so amazing. When I've been working in the space of menstruation literally for 25 years. Uh-huh. Period panties used to be the ones in your back of your drawer that you didn't care if they got ruined because they were already, you know, not your favorite. And they were ones that you wore for when you leaked, when whatever protection you were using yeah. was insufficient. Right. Yeah. Now there's a new category. Uh-huh. And one of the things that's so fascinating about menstruation and all the people who are working in this space say the same thing. Uh-huh. You don't have to choose one versus the other. You can choose the one that works for you. Yeah. If period panties are a good approach for you, that's great. If menstrual cups are a good approach for you, that's great. If yeah. organic tampons are a good approach for you. So they're giving women many more options and not necessarily saying do this versus do that. Mm. But again, it goes back to this idea of, you know, fighting city hall. Yeah. How come male sexuality is okay and acceptable yeah. and permissible and female sexuality is bad. You know, it just came out again um, when this Britney Spears documentary came out and yes. Justin Timberlake yes. apologized yes. to both Britney Spears and to Janet Jackson. Mm-hmm. Just interesting because I happen to be obsessed with these kinds of stories that are in the news that have social yeah. impact. Mm-hmm. So in 2018, uh-huh. Justin Timberlake was the headliner at the Super Bowl. Yep. And he and Janet Jackson had obviously had that wardrobe malfunction years and years earlier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that I believe her nipple had been exposed for five sixteenths of a second. <laughs> and the reason, and again, there are different interpretations, but the I'm reason sorry, I'm not laughing, but given I'm laughing. for why her career maybe never recovered the same way his did is because Les Moonves, who subsequently was driven out of his company uh-huh. for inappropriate behavior, did not think that Janet Jackson was um, sufficiently remorseful for her behavior. For showing Whereas nipple. <laughs> Justin Timberlake apparently went and said, you know, went to kiss the ring and said, you know, please forgive me. Yeah. And what's even more ironic is that in 2019, the headliner, maybe it was 2020, for the halftime show was Adam Levine, who had his shirt off. The entire halftime show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not five sixteenths of a second. And you just see in popular culture just how vastly different our our comfort level 
is. And we're, oh. again, we're not talking about decades ago. The, mm. the nipple situation is just, it, it baffles me in America. That, that is another one that I could really, we could talk about forever. <laughs> because it's, I, when right. I moved to Australia, one of the most beautiful things about relaxing in the Australian shore is that you can take your top off. And you can have a nice, even sun session and just feel <laughs> free and just it's feel... It's really all about an even tan. It has nothing to do with <laughs> well, no, but it just feels, it feels good. You feel free and you feel feminine and, and this and, and that. And there, yeah, there are children playing on the beach. Yeah. And they don't freak out because they're used to seeing women's bodies and they're normalized, mm. you know. in Europe. Uh, yeah. And mm-hmm. it's so bizarre that America is still so scared of nipples, mm. female nipples, <laughs> and they feed children. Yeah. So like, why? I don't know. I don't get it. But even that, even having to say they feed children. So right. yeah. that's great. They have a purpose. But right. most of the time, they're not being used to feed children. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And again, I go back to have standards. Have yeah. standards in your company. Yeah. You know, obviously, with the governmental systems we have around the world, they're very different. But if you're going to have requirements, make them the same. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It can't be that just, you know, the female body and female sexuality is bad right and that male sexuality and the male body is good it's, it's not that black and white it's not that clear how yeah. do you what's your advice to women who are starting um businesses right now in female health reproductive health like sexual menstruation any any of these kind of categories that all fall under, fall under this umbrella what is your advice to someone who has an idea and wants to get it off the ground of of what they basically from your experience, what you would say to that person? Well, there's so many people now in this community. And I said before, they're incredibly generous with their Mm -hmm. time and expertise. So I say, mesh yourself in the community, find people who are interesting to you, who have raised money in a related space and really do research and reach out to the people who already have those battle scars. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good advice. There are lots and lots of resources. There are organizations, you know, there are membership organizations, there are discussion groups, there are so many different ways to get involved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you are Uh, starting a business in a taboo subject, I'd love to hear this because (laughs) we actually have talked to, we're starting to speak to more and more women who are, who are starting these kinds of businesses. I'd love to hear your advice, your best (laughs) advice at breaking through. Mm. My best advice is figure out the problem you're solving and solve it in a way that is better than what exists in some way. It's faster. It's less expensive. It's more enjoyable. Mm -hmm. It's more accessible. Solve a problem that you believe needs solving and then do some initial research to say that what you want to sell, people need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I always use the example when you think about Warby Parker and there's, when I speak to college kids, literally everybody, that's the first example they use. Yeah. And I always say, well, that's great. They totally transformed the eyeglass buying experience, but it wasn't as if people couldn't get eyeglasses before Warby Parker. Right. People still who needed glasses got them. Yeah. What they did in my mind that was so brilliant is sort of they broke down that entire process and made it better at each stage. So it was less expensive. It was less time consuming. It was in your home. You could have multiple styles. It became a fashion statement. But it wasn't as if the problem they were solving is people can't get eyeglasses. Mm -hmm. So be very clear on what it is you're trying to solve and really be a student of the categories. If you want to go into some new approach to menstruation, you should know what the other companies in the space are doing. Mm -hmm. 
you should reach out to the companies who have invested in those spaces. You know, reach out to me, reach out to, uh, there's hundreds of people in the space who are willing to share their battle scars. You know, my experience always is everyone's going to make their own mistakes, but if they could make the ones I made quicker and with less pain, I will feel like I've paid it forward a little bit. <laughs> That's, yeah, that's awesome. And yeah. I, I would say also, I mentioned this to you um, when we were speaking um, earlier before the podcast, I just ask people. So I, during quarantine, uh, when we weren't getting together either with clients or at, at any of these conferences, and again, I really start with the premise that this is an incredibly collaborative, cooperative community, the people in the world of um, sex tech, femtech, and women's health, I said, well, what are we going to do during this time when we're not getting together? Because I find the learning and the collaboration and the conversation so useful. Yeah. So I started this Zoom interview series called Quotes from Quarantine, where I thought I would interview, you know, 10 people, 15 people in femtech, sex tech, and women's health during quarantine. Yeah. And literally by the time I was done, I, I spoke with 120 people. They were investors, they were inventors, they were entrepreneurs, they were healthcare practitioners, they were academics. And there were a couple of reasons I did it. One is I missed the in-person interaction. Two, we've talked about this. I think the conversation is so critically important and mm -hmm. we need to always be having it. Yep. And three is what a great way to learn. The people in this space are some of the most dynamic, thoughtful, disciplined, hardworking, creative people I've ever met. Why couldn't they share some good advice about how to survive and thrive during COVID? Mm. Mm. And I had never done this before. I'd never, you know, done online interviews day after day after day. I mean, I obviously do podcasts and I have a podcast and I've been in podcasts, but this idea yeah. where the only focus is just trying to get educated mm. and to be inspired and hopefully to provide inspiration um, was really exciting. And at the end of all that, um, a business school um, in Paris reached out to me and they're now taking the 120 interviews and doing a deep quantitative analysis huh. so that they can draw some statistical conclusions about what those conversations demonstrate about the world that we're in right now. Wow. Oh, that's awesome. For firstly, that's awesome. But then secondly, this is then what has inspired the business of the V podcast. Is that right? Yes. So, so tell us more about the new podcast I, that you're launching. I, I love doing the, having those conversations. Mm. I was continually amazed at how generous people were um, in terms of giving me their time. And I work with this brilliant obstetrician, gynecologist, surgeon, business advisor, medical advisor, author, speaker by the name of Dr. Alyssa Dweck. And so we are creating a podcast, which is launching March 1st, called Business of the V which is really the intersection of what she does. She's a practicing clinical obstetrician gynecologist. What she sees and hears in her office in terms of the questions women have and unmet needs combined with where I focus, which is the businesses, the products and services that are being created to respond to those questions and unmet needs. Wow. Awesome. So that's going to, it's like the scientific and then also just like business kind of angle of both together in this podcast. Absolutely. Cool. So we always have some t statistics of, you know, if it's menstruation, how much, how many products, pounds of landfill are filled with menstrual products, or if it's menopause, how many women are going into menopause um, in an average year. But there's always medical experiences that 
Dr. Dweck is sharing in terms of conversations that she has in her office with some statistics combined with some of the businesses that are being created to respond to those. And we really try to make it conversational, Mm -hmm. accessible, and informational. That is so exciting. I cannot wait to listen. Same. It's going to be so good. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. We're really excited. This is launching on March 1st, yes. So by the time this podcast comes out, you guys will have a couple months of material out there mm. in the world. Yeah, so we're already ready. When you Before you launch, we learned you have to have a couple of months of content. So you certainly been, do. <laughs> um, this, yes, as you guys well know. Yeah. So that's all in the bank, as they say. And, and we're excited to do whatever we can to continue to keep this conversation going. And it is... It is a community task to get this boulder up the hill so that in a year, two years, five years, 10 years, 10 years is probably more realistic, but I like to be optimistic sometimes. When when we really see a dramatic, dramatic shift Mm -hmm. across the board around these conversations around sexuality in all its complexity. Yeah. Well, we're right there behind you pushing that boulder. That's for sure. Yeah. Thank you, you. This has been incredible. Thank yeah. you so much, Rachel. I. This is, first of all, thank you for paving this way mm. for women or helping too. <laughs> no, seriously. You're so kind. Like thank every you. single one of us that. that stands up and has a voice about things, about an, any sort of inequality is like paving the way for future generations, right? So it's like, wow, mm-hmm. you've done so much and this is incredible. Yeah. So thank you. Well, there's one thing that I, it might not make it into the podcast, but I just want to share because I think it's, and obviously you don't have to include that statement. Um, but I saw the Netflix um, special that Brene Brown did. Mm-hmm. Um, and for people who don't know her, most people do. She gave one of the you know most, most viewed TED Talks and she's an academic and has written a million books and psychology, sociology. And she said something in, in this documentary that really stuck with me. And mm-hmm. she said... If you're not feeling uncomfortable sometimes, you're not trying hard enough. Right. And I thought, what a great way to turn <laughs> that feeling in the pit of your stomach instead of using it to stop you, uh-huh. to use it to motivate you. And I've since I've heard that, I sometimes have the experience, wow, I don't like that feeling in the pit of my stomach. And then mm-hmm. I say, well, you go. That must mean you're doing something right because, <laughs> you know, if you're uncomfortable, Brene Brown says you're doing something right. So even really just having these conversations and and trying things. I mean, these, the answer is always no if you don't ask. And mm-hmm. there's so much about this that is just being out there and, and pushing the envelope and asking questions and learning and finding people who you can learn from and people you can collaborate with because it really, you know, it does take a village to build a business. Mm-hmm. It certainly does. Well, thank you. We are connecting on every single platform on the internet. So (laughs) uh, we will keep in touch. And yeah, thank you so much. Well, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for the work you're doing and for giving so many people the opportunity to share some some work that they're doing. I had seen um, your other episodes and, and you're really trying to catalyze really important conversations. Thank Aww, you, Rachel. That, that really means a lot because that yeah. is what we're trying to do. So that's what we're trying to do every day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> awesome. Well, have a lovely well, evening. Well, you're already in your day. You. So have a wonderful day. Yeah. Uh, Speak soon. soon. Bye now. Bye. Okay. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. This podcast was brought to you by Invoice to Go. We're an invoicing and billing app that helps business owners work and get paid from anywhere. 
at any location around the globe. We're helping close the gender-based pay gap. Because the current U.S. pay gap sits at around 19%, listeners of the Female Founders Network podcast get exactly 19% off of any subscription. Just enter the code EMPOWERWOMEN at checkout.